Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, it's uh, really good to be with y'all. Um, my name is Garrison, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. If this is your first time here, we are very, very glad that you're here. Uh, if you want to take a moment, open your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 1, uh, verses 46 to 55. Luke 1, verses 46 to 55, where we are looking at Mary's song of rejoicing and magnifying the Lord. Luke 1, 46 to 45. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those and turn to Luke 1, 46 to, 40, or to 55. Luke 1, 46 to 55. Uh, when you walked in this morning, you should have received a bulletin, uh, and, and that's uh, got attached to it a, something called a Connect card. Um, if you would, take a moment to fill that out. Uh, we'd love to, to get connected with you and find out about you and get in contact with you. Uh, maybe get together for lunch or a cup of coffee, something along those lines, and, and find out how our church can serve you and how we can get you um, uh, involved with what God is doing here at Veritas. Uh, there's also a little section on those cards for, for you to write down a prayer request. We'd love to know how we can pray for you this week. We count it an honor and a joy to be able to do that. So if you'd jot down just a few things on that card that we can be praying for and turn it in uh, to myself or another leader that you've seen up here this morning or uh, to the black box on the connect or the, the welcome table out in the lobby or in that bucket there in the back, you just drop it off in any of those locations. There's a number of locations you can put that and we'd love to know how we can be praying for you and how we can get in contact with you. All right, Luke 1, 46 to 55. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, uh, we're going to read and, and let, let us read with reverence and with joy because we believe that this is God's voice. He's speaking to us in his word and he's addressing us in the power of his Holy Spirit. And so hear what the Spirit now says to you, church, Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we address you now as those who are of humble estate, and we ask for your help this morning. We speak to you as those who are lowly, Lord, we want to hear your voice and we want to behold your beauty and glory and excellence in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And so would you give us eyes to see now? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts, soft hearts that receive the seed of the word and produce 30, 60, 100 fold for the glory of your name, bearing fruit, bearing uh, faith and trust and hope and obedience? Father, uh, there's no way that we could have that faith, that hope, that trust, that obedience apart from a work uh, from your Holy Spirit through the proclamation of your word. And so we ask for your help now. Illuminate your word to us, Lord. And give us hearts that are set aflame with faith, hope, and love. We need you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, during the season of Advent, we are preaching through several songs in the first two chapters of the gospel according to Luke. This past Sunday, and this Sunday we're looking at Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 to 55. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at Zechariah's song in Luke 1, 67 to 80, which he sang after the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And then uh, on Christmas Eve, we're going to gather together uh, and, and gather around Luke 2.14, where Luke tells us about the song of the angels after Christ is born. And then on New Year's Eve, which takes place during the kind of the 12 days of Christmas, we'll close the season with looking at Simeon's song in Luke 2.29-32. And these are often referred to as the songs of the nativity. The songs of the nativity. They are songs or poetic prayers that were sung and prayed around the birth of Christ, and they have been throughout church history during uh, these seasons of Advent and Christmas as, as well. But the first one we see here is Mary's song. It's often called the Magnificat. Maybe you've heard it called that before, and, and we call it that often because uh, the first word in the Latin translation of the Bible is the word Magnificat, which uh, is simply a word that means magnify. This is Mary's magnifying song that she sings about the good news of this Christ child that she uh, is carrying in her womb. And last week, Dan wonderfully walked us into the beauty of this song. We saw that Mary's song is a magnifying song sung over this miracle son. We saw what the gospel does. The gospel, it comes, it moves the soul, it magnifies in song, it magnifies the Savior. And then we also saw not only what the gospel does, but what the gospel is. The gospel is news. It is good news. It's good news about who Jesus is. It's good news about Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we saw that this is the case in the life of Mary. We saw that Mary, when she heard this good news, when she heard what the gospel is from the angel and had this good news confirmed uh, from Elizabeth when she was uh, visiting her, she was overwhelmed. Now, she was in awe. She was full of praise and adoration and joy. And so she belts out this song of joy. She's so happy that she belts out this song of happiness and magnification. And we're actually going di to dig into this hymn a little bit more this morning, not because anything was lacking in Dan's declaration of it last week. We've been planning on digging into this particular song for two Sundays, but the richness and the depth of this song is such that one Sunday just won't do it justice. Not even two Sundays will do it justice. Really, this, I'm convinced that this is one of the most beautifully written, most profoundly formed songs written in all of human history by this poor, uneducated servant girl from Nazareth. And so we as a people want to consider this song from Mary this morning and simply consider what we're invited into in this song. What are we called to do here? 
What are we invited into? Uh, what, what does this song mean for us in the season of Advent, 2,000 years after it came off of Mary's lips? Well, I believe what we're called to here this morning is exactly what Mary was doing in this song. We're called to rejoice. Like we just sang, rejoice, O Israel. Rejoice. This song is, at its core, a song of rejoicing. Mary is rejoicing. And she is rejoicing because of the great reversal that, uh, that, that the coming of God, that, that the coming of the kingdom of God brings. The coming of Christ signifies the great reversal for the poor, for the broken, for the marginalized, for the outcast, for the needy, for the guilty. She's rejoicing because of this great reversal. And the way that she rejoices is first by remembering the story and of the great reversals of God throughout the uh, redemptive history in the Bible. She reminds us of the story of God's people and all the promises and all the times where God showed up when things seemed hopeless and his people were helpless. And then next she reflects on the reality that all of those promises and stories and times are being fulfilled at this point in redemptive history. Mary is carrying the Christ child, which all of the Old Testament points to. All of the great reversals are leading and pointing to this great reversal. And so we want to join Mary this morning in her rejoicing. The big idea that we'll be working from is this. Mary's song of rejoicing remembers and reflects on God's great reversal. And so we'll seek to join her in her rejoicing by doing exactly what she does, by first remembering and then reflecting on this great reversal. We'll walk through first, remembering, second, reflecting, and then third, this great reversal. At first, we look at Mary's song of rejoicing. We can't help but see that Mary sees herself as someone who's caught up in a story. Uh, Dan noted last week how Mary, uh, was, as a young girl, was immersed in the scriptures. She had been brought up in a good Jewish family that saw themselves as part of the story of God. They were immersed in this story. And that led them to know and to treasure and to sing and to memorize these promises and stories found in the Bible, what we now call the Old Testament. And so uh, after uh, being immersed in the story and, and growing up in this way, Mary hears this good news from the angel who visits her as she hears the good news confirmed by her cousin Elizabeth when she visits her. She rejoices by remembering the story. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She looks back and remembers all of the promises, all of these promises about the Messiah and, and how he has come in her womb and, and how this story, this whole story of, of redemptive history is coming to fruition, how these promises are being fulfilled right here and now in Mary. They had been waiting for these promises to be fulfilled for what seemed like a very long, long, long time, like DMV line long time, a very long time. And, and these promises, they go all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 3. If you're not familiar with uh, the book of Genesis, what takes place is this. Genesis 1, God creates heaven and earth and everything in them. Genesis 2, uh, the, the story kind of narrows in on the creation of humanity as the crown jewel of God's creation. Uh, humanity, male and female, are created in God's image and, and after his likeness. And everything in Genesis 1 and 2 is as it should be. Uh, nothing sad had become true yet. Everything was as it should be. Everything was good and true and beautiful. But in Genesis 3, tragedy strikes. And Satan comes to this man and this woman, and he entices them to rebel against God, and they sin. 
And, and it's tragic. It's a heartbreaking event because in their sinning, everything and everyone else became subject to Satan and to sin. And we're all separated from God as this took place. All, uh, all that was once good and true and beautiful becomes stained with sin and corruption. Everything that is sad becomes true at this point. But the good news is that God shows up. God shows up, and it doesn't really seem like good news at first because when he comes, he comes cursing. He comes to put a curse on the man and the woman and the serpent. But the good news is that God is not only just, he, 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 he like a good judge, he administers justice when, when his people rebel against him, but he's not only just, he's also merciful. And in his great mercy, when all seems to be hopeless, and, and when Adam and Eve and their children, including us, are helpless, God gives a gracious promise in Genesis 3.15. God promises that someone, one day, is going to come and he's going to save us. And he's going to be the offspring of this woman. He's going to come and save Adam and Eve and their children, including us. And he's going to crush the head of Satan and defeat him forever. This is, it's, this is the offspring of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. And this is a pivoting point in the story here. Because in all of the darkness and all of the hopelessness and helplessness and all of the gloom and all of the cursing, there's a glimmer of hope and a promise of help. And as the story continues, it seems that that glimmer, it just continues to grow dimmer and dimmer. As you read Genesis, you're supposed to keep an eye out for the offspring of this woman. You're just waiting for the Savior to come. You're waiting and waiting for the Savior. Uh, the, 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 offspring, the, the women in Genesis, they're continually waiting. Every time a child is born, the, the mother in Genesis, she's wondering, and, and you wonder as you read the story, is this the promised child? Is this our Savior? Is this the offspring of promise? And as you do so, you almost begin to lose hope. Because thousands of years pass, and no Savior comes. The offspring doesn't come. In fact, everything seems to just become more and more hopeless. But then thousands of years later, the story narrows in on this old married couple, Abram and Sarai. They come to be known as Abraham and Sarah later. It's, it's actually only like 10 chapters in Genesis, but, but it, it actually was at least 2,000 years, probably more, about 2,000 years. This is where the offspring has to come from at this point. It's from Abraham and Sarah. That's the way the story develops, the way that the family line continues. It's down to this man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. And if God doesn't continue this family line, then he's not going to keep his promise in Genesis 3, and he's a liar. But there's a problem because Abraham is the son of a moon worshiper, and his wife, Sarah, is not able to have children. She's not able to conceive. And they're both like ridiculously, outlandishly old. They're very old, like 100 years old. The situation seems hopeless, and these people are helpless. You, you, you begin to think this, the offspring's not going to come. And again, when everything seems to be the darkest, God comes to them in Genesis 17, 16, and he says, I'm going to bless Sarai, and she's going to have a son, and nations and kings are going to come from her. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he makes the same kind of promise that he made to Eve back in Genesis 3. He says that salvation and blessing is going to come from Abraham's offspring. And the offspring of promise is going to continue through this barren woman, this woman who's 100 years old, and through this 100-year-old man. That glimmer that was growing dimmer and dimmer begins to shine bright again. When things seemed hopeless and God's people were helpless, he comes and he gives hope and he gives help by making this promise 
of this offspring. But then again, as you continue through the story, the, the glimmer begins to dim again. The story of Genesis begins to follow the family of Abraham. It follows Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, Judah and Joseph and the rest. And through a really, really long and complicated story, this family ends up in Egypt. And when they first end up in Egypt, they're actually highly favored by the Egyptian people and by uh, the Pharaoh, which is like the king of Egypt. He's the king of Egypt, Pharaoh is. And, and, and they're highly favored by them. But as time goes on, the family of Abraham, who was, when they first got there, they were just really just a, a large family. But it, they multiply and they multiply and they multiply. They were like the people of Veritas. They were just continually pumping out babies all the time. It was just crazy. Like every time you turn around, a baby's falling out of somebody. It's wild. And so this family grew uh, into a nation. This family grew into a nation. As several pharaohs came and went, this family began to grow and grow and grow and became a people group. And the Egyptians, as new pharaohs came and went, the Egyptians began to grow suspect of this people group living within their borders. And rather than showing the family of Abraham favor, they began to fear and disdain and hate this people, the people of Israel. And so this new Pharaoh, rather than treating this people with kindness as the other Pharaoh had done all those years ago, he actually comes against them with the full authority of his empire and with the full power of their military, and he enslaves the people of Israel. He takes away their wealth, their freedom, their dignity, and he makes them work and work and work. And because they were growing so large, he, he made a decree that all baby boys born in Israel were to be drowned in the Nile River, would be killed and you begin to wonder again, as, as this is all taking place, did God forget about this promise that he made to his people back in Genesis 3 and back in Genesis 17 to Eve and to Abraham? You know, the, 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 I mean, he's promised his promised people. They're poor, they're enslaved, they're hated, they're forgotten, their children, their offspring are being killed like it's nothing all day long. It seems like God had forgotten them, but again... When things seem their darkness, when all seems to be hopeless and God's people are utterly helpless, he steps in. God comes with the full authority and power of heaven and he reveals Pharaoh for what he is, just a pretender to the throne. God utterly destroys Egypt and he defeats the pompous, prideful, mighty Pharaoh with ease. Mary's words are a fitting description of what takes place. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. That's exactly what he does in Egypt. And while God is doing all this, this, this hopeless and helpless people of Israel, they don't lift a finger, but they're entirely and utterly and completely rescued. They're in their weakness and their humble estate. They can't do anything, and yet God rescues and redeems them from slavery and oppression in Egypt, and he brings them out, and he even has them plunder the Egyptians as they go out of the nation. The, the Egyptians give the people of Israel all their wealth as they're on their way out. Again, the words of Mary are fitting here. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He rescues the family of Abraham. He rescues the people of Israel, and he preserves this offspring of promise. And yet again later, and we won't go into much detail here for the sake of time, but, but again later things get dark. The people of Israel are redeemed out of Egypt. They're brought into this wonderful land 
where they become a kingdom. They have this temple and this sacrificial system wherein they meet with God on a regular basis. But eventually we come to see that the people of Israel are just as much a part of the problem as everyone else. They're just like Adam and Eve back in the garden, sinners just like them. They're just like all the nations. They're just like us. They're sinful people. They're sinners just like us. And they sin and they rebel against God just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And so this, 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 this wonderful land that they've been given is taken away. They're kicked out. The temple is destroyed. And the worst part about all of this is God actually eventually stops speaking to the Israelites. He, he sends no more prophets to guide them and tell them uh, how to live and what to do and how to repent, how to return. He stops speaking. He takes away his presence. And for 400 years, silence. And I want you to realize that this is actually the world that Mary is born into. This is the hopeless setting that Mary is born into. And so she's not only remembering the story of God's people and their helplessness and hopelessness all those years ago, but she, as someone who's a part of the people of God and included in the story, she's now reflecting on how God's story is developing in her time and place in history. For the last 400 years when Mary comes, it seems that God's people were utterly forsaken and forgotten by God. Things are dark. The situation that God's people are in seems hopeless. They are helpless. They're subject to a tyrannical king just like they were in Egypt. And they need God to act. This glimmer of hope seems not only to be dimming, but it seems utterly snuffed out at this point in redemptive history. And it's in this setting that an angel comes and he shows up in front of this poor, nobody girl who lives in a nowhere small town called Nazareth. And he says, Mary, salvation is coming. You're going to have a son. And you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And he is the long-awaited king. He is going to rescue his people and reign as king forever. And so as Mary remembers the story and now reflects on what is happening, she rejoices. She bursts out in song. Mary's rejoicing and magnifying the Lord because of what he has done in history. But not just that. She's not only filled with adoration and joy because of what he had done, but because of what he was doing here and now in her. Not only had God shown up time and time again to pick up his people, to lift up the lowly, to save the lost, to, to rescue helpless people in hopeless situations, but Mary says he's at it again. He's doing it again. The God who rescues and redeems the helpless and the hopeless, he's doing it again. He's here to rescue. He's here to save. He's here to lift up the humble and broken and poor. He's here to fill and satisfy the hungry. He's at it again. When things seem hopeless, and when God's people were helpless, he shows up again, and this time he shows up in the womb of this poor virgin girl from Nazareth. And so Mary rejoices at this wonderful news, but not only that, she, she, she reflects on what God is doing. She's also amazed and in awe that God is using her in such a special way. You know, every Hebrew woman throughout history looked forward to this day and desired the honor of, of giving birth to the Messiah. And what's amazing is, is that God didn't choose a rich, powerful Jewish woman to play this role in the story. He chose Mary. And overwhelmed with gratitude and joy, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary is of humble estate. She's poor. As we see in the next chapter of Luke, when she's going to give the offering for purification after the birth, instead of offering a lamb, she offers two birds as a sacrifice. And the two birds were a provisional sacrifice for those who were too poor to afford a lamb. She's poor. She's humble. Mary is utterly forgettable. And not only that, but she's from Nazareth, a place where when one of the disciples heard that Jesus had come from there, uh, they they said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And I love what uh, rapper show Baraka says. He, He answers that question by saying, the only thing good came from Nazareth. There's absolutely no reason, though, that you should know who Mary is. She was a poor, forgettable girl from a poor, forgettable town, but she will be remembered forever. All generations will call her blessed. She receives God's blessing. She receives God's benediction. All generations from now on will call her blessed because of this special role that God has given this nobody girl from this nowhere town in the history of redemption. And I want to suggest this is actually the way that he always does it, isn't it? He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He calls the weak to shame the powerful. This is what God has always done, and it's what he's doing in Mary, and what he's doing now, and what he always will do. This God shows up in the most unexpected places and situations, and amongst the most unworthy people, according to the world's standards. He shows up in the garden after the fall to give this promise. He shows up in the lives of this couple of super old moon worshipers. He shows up in Egypt amongst those who are enslaved and powerless, not in palaces. And here in Mary's life, he shows up after 400 years of silence in a small town in the womb of a poor virgin. My kids, they love this this song by Liz Weiss. It's called Father, Let Your Kingdom Come. And one of the lines in the bridge, it gets me every time. Father, you make all things new in places we don't choose. And it's true, he shows up in places that we would never think to look, with people that you would never think to find him with. He shows up in the broken places. He shows up in the forgettable places. He shows up in the hopeless situations and amongst helpless peoples, like Mary and Abraham, like Israel and the church, like you and like me. And this is all ultimately revealing to us this great reversal that takes place in the kingdom of God and in the coming of Christ. As we've been remembering the story and reflecting on Mary's situation, the the, the kind of theme that we see woven throughout all of this is this theme of reversal. This great reversal of status. This great reversal of roles. This great reversal of position that comes in the kingdom of God, that comes when God acts. The proud are scattered. The mighty are brought down. Those of humble estate are exalted. The hungry, poor are filled with good things. The rich are sent away empty. There's a great reversal that comes when God acts and his kingdom comes. The lowly are lifted high. The high are brought low. The humble, poor are exalted. The rich are brought down. The guilty are declared righteous and the self-righteous are declared guilty. The outcast is given a seat of honor and the arrogant are put out. This is the theme that fills Mary's song and life, and it filled the story of God's people all throughout history, and it fills the the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus. 
And it's maybe most clearly brought out in the Gospel of Luke here. The poor, the spiritually poor, the socially poor, the economically poor, those who are marginalized, the vulnerable, the broken, the lowly, the needy are brought in and included. But, but those who have no need, those who have enough, the arrogant, the self-sufficient, the self-righteous, those who don't need Jesus and his salvation, they're put out. Jesus says as much himself in Luke 13, 30, that in the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. And in Luke 6, 20, in a sermon, Jesus belts out these glorious benedictions that we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. In other words, those who the world would never in a million years call blessed. I'm telling you, they're blessed. But woe to those who the world would typically call blessed. Because this kingdom that that this Christ child ushers in is a kingdom of reversal. And so the question for us is never, are we good enough for this kingdom? Are we strong enough? Are we well enough? Are we righteous enough? The question is, are we poor enough? Are we broken enough? Are we weak enough to know our need and to receive his benediction and healing? His blessing only comes to those who aren't too good to receive it. So those of us who are strong, those of us who are well, Jesus didn't come for you. Those who have it all together, who aren't sick, Jesus did not come for you. Jesus said himself in Luke 5, 21, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came for those who are ill. He came for those who are weak. He came for those who are helpless and in hopeless situations. My favorite TV show is The Office. Some of you know that. It's brilliant, it's hilarious, and uh, there's an episode where Michael Scott is being interviewed for a promotion, and his boss, David Wallace, he asks him what his three greatest strengths are. And Michael says, very clever, he says, oh, why don't you let me tell you what my three greatest weaknesses are? And he says, I care too much, I work too hard, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. David Wallace responds slightly confused, okay, and your strengths? Michael says, my weaknesses are also my strengths. David says, ah, very good. It's very clever. And of course, we all do this. It's not uncommon for you to be asked in a job interview what your three biggest strengths and three biggest weaknesses are. And so it's often recommended that you think of, uh, you know, an answer to these questions beforehand. So when you're asked when you're, what your three greatest weaknesses are, you don't break down in tears and, and tell them how big of a mess you really are. And so you try to come up with like three 
weaknesses that make you sound like Captain America or something. Like, I, you know, my, my, I, I'm, I'm a perfectionist. Like the strongest weakness you could think of. I'm, you know, I'm just too intelligent. <laughs> and I want you to hear this morning that in the economy of the kingdom of Jesus, weakness, brokenness, neediness, they really are strengths. Being too weak, being too frail, being too needy has never kept anyone from entering into this kingdom. But being too strong certainly has. You know, maybe the circumstances of your life, your pain, your suffering, your grief, have you driven to your knees and the hits just keep on coming and you don't know if you can take anymore and you're desperate for some sort of relief. Well, Jesus came for you. Or, 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 or maybe you, you, you're just continually, constantly, incessantly dealing with overwhelming fear and, and anxiety and depression. Jesus came for you. Or, or maybe you've been despairing over your own moral and spiritual bankruptcy. You know that you are a sinner. You know that you are guilty. You know that you deserve condemnation. Jesus came for you. Whatever it is, there's good news for you this morning. When you come to the end of yourself and when things seem hopeless and when you're utterly helpless, there is a God full of mercy and grace there to meet you. And he's ready to mend, ready to forgive, ready to heal, ready to bless, ready to be your joy in the midst of pain and struggle because in the economy of this kingdom, brokenness is the only way to blessedness. As John Stott once said, we can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we first have cried, woe is me for I am lost. But we can cry hallelujah like Mary. We can magnify and rejoice like Mary because ultimately the one that we magnify came and become, became helpless for us. He came as the helpless babe, totally dependent on the care and nurturing of his mother. He came and took on flesh and brokenness. He came and became poor himself. And not only that, not only that, not only did he become a babe and walk this earth as the man of sorrows with no place to rest his head for us, not only did he take on the poverty and the human frailty for us, but on the cross he took our sin upon himself. And he hung there being tortured being crucified, body broken and bleeding, making himself utterly helpless, putting himself in, an, in a seemingly hopeless situation. But as always, just like it was with Eve and Abraham and Israel and with Mary, in this seemingly hopeless situation, with this seemingly helpless man hanging on a cross, God is reaching down and with his mighty arm, he's rescuing his people. Here, in the cross of Christ, here in his brokenness, we find our blessedness. Here in his death, we find our deliverance. Here in hopelessness and helplessness, we find our hope and our help. Through the cross comes salvation. Through his death comes resurrection. And it's ours, as long as it's not too far beneath us. And so during the season of Advent, we can rejoice your spirit can rejoice in God, your Savior. You can magnify God like Mary because this mighty God has done great things for you in Christ. He has reached down his mighty arm to rescue you in your sin and brokenness and poverty and weakness. But then we not only rejoice in this season, we do rejoice, we most certainly do, but we also wait. 
we wait because we recognize that, that what Mary is rejoicing about here, while it's been partially realized in the coming of Christ, it hasn't been fully realized yet. We live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. His kingdom has come in Christ. We experience wonderful things on this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We receive the Spirit. We're getting to experience the gathering of God's people in small communities of light throughout the entire world. He is present with us. He's present with us in His people and His word and prayer at His table. He's present with us. We have confidence that we are justified in Christ and accepted by God as His children if we trust in Him. But we also still very much experience situations that seem hopeless, and at times we feel helpless, don't we? There's still much pain, still much suffering and struggling in this life. There's still much injustice and brokenness in this world. The mighty and proud and arrogant still have power and authority throughout nations and in our nation. And so we also await the day when Christ will return and make all things new and we will receive resurrection bodies like his own when there will be no more tears and no more sin, no more pain or suffering or fear or anxiety or depression or sickness or injustice. All of creation will be healed on that day and made new and perfected. On that day, all the tyrannical leaders, kings and dictators, presidents and prime ministers will be knocked off their seats of power. And all who fear God, all who call on him in faith, all who have received his salvation and mercy will be raised up and will reign with him forever. Even those who were poor and disdained and persecuted, even those who were hungry, even those who wept during their time in this life, In the age to come, they will be raised up and reign with him forever. That's what we're rejoicing about during Advent. And that's what we're waiting for. In a time where just like Mary is doing here, we're remembering what God has done. We're reflecting about what he's currently doing. We're rejoicing in this great reversal that has been ushered in and accomplished in the first Advent of Jesus. And we also remain waiting for that great reversal to be fully realized in the second Advent. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, would you create an eruption of joy and rejoicing in our hearts as we remember, as we are about to approach your table, as we remember this great reversal that has been ushered in in the coming and in the crucifixion of Jesus. Would you also help us to reflect now on what you're currently doing in our midst? Would you help us to reflect now how you are with us, present with us, Would you help us to reflect now as we come with reverence to receive the bread and the cup? Would you help us, Lord, ultimately to rejoice in what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do and who you are? Lord, would you help us to trust and to hope, to love you? Lord, and to be strengthened by this meal, to go out and to belt out this good news just like Mary did in this passage. Let it be our song. Let it be our joy, our hope. Let it be our refreshment, that we may be a refreshment to all those that we come in contact with this week. Lord, come and be present with us, work within us, sanctify us, and help us to become lower and lower and lower 
and to lift up Jesus higher and higher and higher. It's in his name we pray. Amen.